Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. What does Jesus have to say about relationships? Here's the Jesus standard for righteousness. Keep a check, keep a watch on your anger and your words. And if either gets out of hand, work for reconciliation and do it quickly. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Nobody enjoys dealing with difficult people. Negative neighbors, co-workers, even our own family can spoil an otherwise very good day. Well, Jesus certainly recognized the need to cultivate healthy relationships. And today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shares how Jesus addressed this very important topic in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Right now, most of us have lost our summer vacation vibes and we're heads down into our fall responsibilities. Well, it won't be long before hundreds of your Pathway to Victory fellow listeners will be embarking on a vacation of a lifetime. And I'm hoping you'll join us too. I'm referring to the 2023 Pathway to Victory Tour to Israel. This is a vacation with a purpose. The dates are April 25 through May 5, 2023. Nothing will invigorate your spiritual walk any more than witnessing the Holy Land with your own eyes. I guarantee you will come home spiritually refreshed. Please take a few minutes to check out the wonderful itinerary we've prepared for you. And you can reserve your spot as well by going to ptv.org. One of the spots in Israel that I'm going to show you is the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount that is the focus of our study. Coincidentally, this month I'm presenting a teaching series on this remarkable message from Jesus. As a compliment to our study and as a gift to you, I've written a brand new book called 18 Minutes with Jesus, Straight Talk from the Savior about the things that matter most. It's perfect for your morning reading time, and many are using this book in their small group Bible study as well. Again, my book is titled 18 Minutes with Jesus, and I'll make sure a copy is sent to your home right away when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. We'll say more about my book and other resources right after my message. But right now, let's begin message number four in this 10-part series. I titled today's message, Straight Talk About Your Relationships. Ruth Graham, the wife of evangelist Billy Graham, was one time asked about her marriage to the great evangelist. The reporter said, Mrs. Graham, has there ever been a time during your marriage in which you thought about divorce? With a twinkle in her eye, she said, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. It's a funny reply, but it's interesting that some people actually use a standard like that to measure their own righteousness. They think as long as they don't actually run away with somebody else's mate, as long as they don't actually kill the mate they're thinking about murdering, well, maybe they're good enough to get into heaven. But as we're going to see today, God has a far higher standard than our standard. 
And understanding that standard is not only necessary to make it into the kingdom of God, but it's necessary for us to live with the benefits of the kingdom of God right now. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our series, 18 Minutes with Jesus, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus began this most famous of all sermons by outlining the benefits of living according to his standards. We call those benefits the Beatitudes. He talked also last time we saw about when we live according to Jesus' standard, we're the salt and light he commanded us to be. But now we're ready to get into the application. How does understanding and applying Jesus' standard apply, first of all, to our relationships? And that's what he begins with in verse 17. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That phrase law and prophets refers to the Old Testament. That was the phrase for the Old Testament, which is all the scripture that they had. The rumor was already going on at this beginning point in Jesus' ministry that he was disobeying the Old Testament law. There was an incident in Mark 2 when he didn't obey the law about the Sabbath. And so they said, this rabble rouser is trying to negate the Old Testament. He said, oh, far from it. I came to actually fulfill the requirements of the law. In fact, verse 18, for truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Now, I'd be guilty of pastoral negligence here if I didn't stop and point out Jesus' attitude toward the Scripture, his high view of Scripture. Now, again, remember, the Scripture at that time was just the Old Testament. Later, it would be expanded to the New Testament. Have you ever heard uh, somebody say, well, I, I believe the ideas of the Bible are inspired. Maybe not the individual words. There may be some errors in the Bible. It's the thoughts of the Bible that are inspired. Have you heard that before? Jesus said, no, it's not just the ideas that are inspired. It's the words that make up those ideas that are inspired, breathed by God. And he doesn't stop there. He says it's not only the words that are inspired, but the letters that are inspired. And it's not only the letters that make up the words that make up the ideas, it's any stroke on an individual letter in a word that makes up the thoughts that is inspired by God. The smallest letter or stroke is inspired by God. In Hebrew, the smallest letter was the yod. It looked like an apostrophe. But the stroke, the King James calls it a tittle, a jot or tittle, a stroke was occurred on some letters that one stroke could change the letter and the letter could change the word. Dr. Charles Ryrie, who was my theology professor in seminary, used to use this illustration with us in the English language. He said, you know, it only takes one stroke on a letter to change a word. For example, the only difference between a P and an R is that one stroke. A P can be changed into an R. What difference does that make? Well, it can make the difference between the word pun, P-U-N, or run, R-U-N. You say, well, so what? Well, that can make a difference. If you're reading an obituary, it makes a difference whether John Smith died from running or John Smith died from punning. 
We didn't know punting could be lethal to your health, did you? But somebody could make a mistake and change the entire meaning of a thought with one stroke of a letter. Now, Jesus applies that to Scripture. Every part of the Bible, even the smallest letter and stroke, is inspired by God. But Jesus' main purpose in saying this was not to talk about the inerrancy of the Scripture, which is a fact. His main topic is righteousness. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We had a friend in a former church who was a dentist by profession. He was a pole vaulter by hobby. And I remember he told me one time, he said, Robert, there are two ways you can succeed at pole vaulting. Either learn to jump higher or lower the bar. You get there either way. Well, you know, that lowering the bar, I think, explains people's view of righteousness. It's why only 4% of Americans, according to the latest polls, only 4% of Americans think there's even a chance they will end up in hell one day. You know why they are so confident in their self-righteousness? They have lowered the bar of what God expects from us. The average person on the street today or that you talk to believes that just as long as I have a little more righteousness than Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler, or Vladimir Putin, as long as I'm a little bit better, that gives me the opportunity to cross the bar, so to speak, to make it into heaven. They've got the wrong standard of righteousness. That's what uh, uh, Jesus' audience had. They had a wrong standard of righteousness. Jesus said, no, you have to exceed the bar set by the Pharisees. Well, the audience gasped at that. You have to be better than the Pharisees. Remember, they thought the Pharisees were the holiest of all God's people. Let me show you why. The Pharisees were strict adherents of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law had... 245 commandments and 365 prohibitions. Almost six, more than 600 rules about what to do and what not to do. And if that weren't enough, the Pharisees added to it. They added thousands of regulations about what kind of work exactly you could not do on the Sabbath. They made it impossible for anybody to obey those standards. And yet Jesus said, even that standard of the Pharisees isn't enough. Jesus said the real standard of righteousness is not only your external behavior, but your internal feelings, the attitude that fuels your outward behavior. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They had manufactured this external standard of righteousness, which they were fairly good at keeping, not perfect. But Jesus said they were nothing more than dishes that are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. Jesus has a completely different standard. Now, to help you understand this and to remind you of the difference between judicial righteousness and ethical righteousness, let me change metaphors for a moment. Let's get out of the world of pole vaulting, which probably nobody can really identify with, and let's go to a painful experience we are facing every week now, and that is filling up our gas tank. It's becoming increasingly painful, isn't it, to do that? Now, I want you to imagine there are two drivers. There's the first driver. He is a non-Christian, and he goes to fill up his spiritual gas tank, and he puts the nozzle in the tank, and he starts pumping the gas, and 
He watches how much it's costing him and so forth. And then that little sensor automatically cuts off the pump. It says your tank is full in a sense. But is it full? No. There's always room for more gasoline. You have to pump more gasoline in manually to make sure that pump is full. The sensor doesn't have it right. Now, here is a non-Christian, and his goal is to have enough spiritual righteousness to make it all the way into heaven. And so, he has this internal sensor that tells him when he's done enough. As long as I haven't dealt drugs or molested children, I'm probably okay. I've got enough. But his internal sensor is faulty. That's not enough. In fact, the amount of righteousness it takes in your spiritual gas tank to make it into heaven is so expensive, none of us can afford it. Now, you may have more gas in your tank, more righteousness than I have, and I may have more than Vlad has in his, but you know what? It doesn't matter. None of us has enough. That's why the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What I've just described to you is what the Bible terms judicial righteousness, a right standing with God. But the good news is Jesus Christ has more than enough spiritual righteousness. And when we trust in him to be our savior, he pours his righteousness into our spiritual gas tank. And that's enough to get us into heaven. That's what our judicial righteousness is. is It's our right standing with God. And that comes as a gift from Jesus Christ. Now, driver number two is a Christian. His concern in life is not so much getting to heaven. He already knows he's got enough righteousness to do that. But he has a different destination in mind. He wants to drive to a place in this life that is characterized by freedom from anxiety, contentment with your circumstances, a fulfilled marriage, satisfying relationships. He wants to experience the kingdom of God now. He needs a different kind of righteousness, ethical righteousness, That's our right acting before God. That's what ethical righteousness is. And it's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about how to experience the kingdom of God now. Remember the theme, those who model the attitudes, affections, and actions of Jesus Christ are guaranteed genuine joy in this life and unending happiness in the next life. So here's a Christian, and he's trying to fill up his ethical gas tank with ethical righteousness. We've got the wrong standard. People, again, think as long as they don't murder anybody or sleep with somebody else's mate, that's enough. That's all it takes. Jesus says, no, my standard is far higher than that if you want to get to where you really want to go in this life. And that's what he's talking about, righteousness, in this passage. Now, let's see how that applies to our relationships Here was the Old Testament standard, Matthew 5, 21. Jesus said, now you have heard that the ancients were said, that's another way of saying, you have read in the Bible, the Old Testament, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, let's hand it to the Pharisees. They got it right. They were teaching right. The Old Testament standard was don't murder anybody. That was the minimum standard, don't murder anybody. By the way, the command, thou shalt not kill, is better translated, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus is quoting it correctly here. 
Why, what's the difference? Well, there are some allowances for killing in the Bible. Did you know that? There's some instances where you can take another person's life. For example, in Genesis 9-6, God outlined the principle for capital punishment. He said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed as well. Capital punishment is God's idea. He said, human life is so important and valuable that if anybody takes a person's life in a premeditated way, he ought to have his life taken as a way of showing uh, how valuable human life is. You say, well, that was the Old Testament. This was long before the Mosaic Law. This is one of God's foundational principles. By the way, you find that in Romans 13 as well in the New Testament. Paul said uh, in Romans 13, government does not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, God's given government the right to behead people for certain offenses, which includes uh, taking the life of another human being. We don't have time to get into it, but Exodus 22, 2 to 3, talks about the allowance for killing somebody accidentally if they're breaking into your home and trying to steal your property. If you make a mistake and kill them, you get off the hook for doing that. Here's a command of Jesus I bet few of you have ever read before. Luke twenty two thirty six. Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. You're to buy a sword. Keep it. Why? To slice bread? Is that what he's talking about? No. It's to defend yourself. In Jesus' day, it was open carry. Everybody had a sword. <laughs> As for a righteous purpose, all human life is important to God, including your own and that of your family. You can protect yourself. So there are instances in which taking a life was allowed. But Jesus said the law is don't murder. And if you, in a premeditated, angry way, take the life of somebody else, you are guilty. So that's the minimum standard. Jesus said, I'm going to raise that standard. I mean, let's be honest. If you want to have a great relationship with one another person, if you want to have a fulfilling relationship, not killing them is kind of the basic standard. I mean, if you kill them, you've destroyed any possibility for a relationship, right? But not killing them doesn't guarantee a great relationship. Jesus adds to that standard. He pours a little more into the spiritual gas tank. Look at verse 22. But I say to you, not in contradiction of the Old Testament, but in addition to it, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is addressing the attitudes behind the action of murder. And this is his foundational teaching about relationships. Yes, murder is the extreme, the ultimate way of severing your relationship with another person. But there are other ways to fracture an important relationship. For example, it's possible to murder somebody through infuriation. That is, with your anger. That's what Jesus says here. Everyone who is angry is guilty. Does that mean anger is always wrong? No, anger is not always wrong. If you'll remember in our series on Proverbs, the Solomon's Secrets, I defined anger as a 
natural, physical, and emotional reaction to perceived injustice. It's natural for us to be angry. When we see these atrocities being committed in Ukraine, most of us get angry at what we're watching. You know why we get angry? It's not because we're sinful. It's because we are made in the image of God who gets angry. We are made in God's image. God is angered over injustice, wrongdoing. Did you know the word anger in the Old Testament is used 455 times? 375 of those times, it refers to the anger of God. The reason we get angry is because God gets angry. And that's not just an Old Testament concept in John 2. Jesus was angry when he saw the money changers in the temple and he drove them out. Jesus was angry at the Pharisees who were hypocrites, who tried to make others carry out responsibilities they didn't carry out. No, anger is not always wrong. It's anger that's not properly dealt with that's wrong. It might be helpful to know that in the Greek language, especially in the New Testament, there are two major words for anger. One is thumos. That word refers to a flash of anger that comes quickly and dissipates quickly. But the kind of anger Jesus is talking about is not thumos, it's orge, O-R-G-E. This is a smoldering, internal anger. It's like a fire that starts in the attic of your house and begins to grow and grow and grow until it consumes your entire house. That's the kind of anger he's talking about, resentment that turns into jealousy and bitterness and ultimately erupts into some violent explosion. It's the kind of anger that was behind the first murder in the Bible in Genesis 4. Remember Cain and Abel? God accepted Abel's sacrifice because it was according to God's standard. He rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain became resentful. He thought he had been treated unjustly. And that perceived injustice led to bitterness. And that bitterness uh, turned into resentment and jealousy and ultimately exploded with Cain killing Abel. No, anger is natural, and it's okay as long as it's dealt with correctly and quickly. Emphasize that word quickly. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin. Isn't that an interesting command? Be angry and yet do not sin. If anger in and of itself were wrong, he never would have said be angry. Is there any other verse in the Bible that says, be lustful and do not sin? Be a drunkard, be drunk, but don't sin. Be a thief, but don't sin. No, it's be angry, yet don't sin. And here's how to deal with it correctly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was deeply practical. He taught us invaluable lessons on life, including how to deal with our occasional bouts with anger. Today's topic constitutes one of the chapters in my brand new book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, and I hope you'll be among those who reach out to request your copy of this hardcover book today. Again, it's called 18 Minutes with Jesus, straight talk from the Savior about the things that matter most. Sometimes I think we're prone to complicate the Christian life. We get all tangled up in our problems, and we spend way too much time listening to our critics. Jesus understands that. He knows what we need to hear. 
and in just 18 minutes, he distilled some of the most perplexing problems in life, and he offered clear-cut solutions. Ask for a copy of my book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, when you give a generous gift to support the growing ministry of Pathway to Victory. It comes with my thanks. In fact, I'll also include a stack of 10 encouragement cards from the Sermon on the Mount. Each card clearly identifies a common struggle and how to overcome it. This daily program and the resources we provide for you are very costly to generate. Bear that in mind as you think about the gift God is prompting you to give today. But we're happy to produce these daily Bible studies and the printed resources because we know that God's Word never returns void. In fact, we have overwhelming evidence that God is using Pathway to Victory to marshal His army against the forces of evil in our world. So, if you're among those who give generously, thanks so much. God is using your generosity to pierce the darkness with the light of His Word. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. When you give a generous gift to Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book from Dr. Jeffers called 18 Minutes with Jesus. As an added bonus, we'll also include a set of 10 encouragement cards. Here's our toll-free number, 866-999-2965, or online visit ptv.org. And when you give an especially generous gift of $100 or more, we'll also include the complete 18 Minutes with Jesus teaching series on audio and video discs. Plus, you'll get the companion study guide. Call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. You can also send your request by mail right to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. One more time, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us next time for Part 2 of the message called Straight Talk About Your Relationships, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.